As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That was the theme song of a a particular fundraiser who was helping to do a capital campaign for the Pope. His name was Johann Tetzel. And he was, was, I believe, uh, either Dominican or Franciscan, um, who was raising funds for the Pope to to build, I believe, St. Peter's Basilica in 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 Rome, and so, um, and so he was going around, and that was his that was his clarion call to people, because one of the things in Catholic belief was that um, you you didn't just unless you were a saint you didn't just go directly to heaven, you had to spend time in purgatory to sort of uh, wear off your sins, the ones that you hadn't atoned for, hadn't or hadn't done enough good works in order to to receive forgiveness for. And so you could, you could pay and, and the Pope would give, would give your loved one an indulgence. So this is the selling of indulgences. And an indulgence basically was that then your sins would be forgiven in proportion to the amount that you paid. And so he was raising funds for this particular purpose. Well, this really bothered this, there were a lot of things that really bothered Martin Luther, but this really bothered him. Now, Martin Luther has, a, has a, um, an interesting and unique life. He, um, he was not um, aristocracy. He was not born into necessarily a tremendously wealthy family, but his family was well-to-do enough that he could be sent to school. Because at this time, at this time, not everybody... Um, had the right or the ability uh, to go to school. There weren't schools everywhere like, like there are today. Actually, that's a byproduct of the Reformation, but we'll talk about that later. So he was, so he, so he was being educated, and his father wanted him to go into the law because his father knew that he could make money and provide for the family that way by being a lawyer. But they were also Catholic people in Germany. And so they were, they, were, they were faithful people, religious people. And so one time when Martin Luther was traveling back home from where he was going to school, there was a big thunderstorm. Does anybody remember the thunderstorm from, uh, from, from the hurricane? What was that, a week ago Monday or so? Or maybe two weeks ago Monday, tomorrow? Whenever that was? I don't know where you were, but um, I sure would have been... I, I was thinking about praying to the saints, because uh, I was right down here with... Uh, with about thigh deep in some water trying to clear a drain um, so we wouldn't have water coming in the basement of the building. And that lightning went off, and, it, and, and, it was, and the flash and the bang happened at the same time. And uh, that, was, that was pretty scary. So it was that kind of a thunderstorm, apparently. And so he, he, he sort of cowered in the ditch, and, and, and he basically said, well, he said, according to what he wrote about it and what other people wrote about it, Basically, he prayed to St. Anne. I don't, I'm not for sure who St. Anne was. And, and he said, uh, basically, if you save me, I'll give my life over to the church. And from that day on, he, of course, he was saved. He did. He, he went from being a lawyer to, to um, being trained in the law to being trained in theology. Um, and he was very faithful. He was very faithful. He was also given over, and I think we can tell just by this picture... He was very given over to darkness. Um, he, 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 t- 
tussled with Satan all the time. Um, we, we believe now that he probably, he probably had what we would call depression, that, that he struggled with that mightily. And, of course, uh, you know, he, he always felt that that was part of his sinfulness. And he was very, very faithful in when he would go to, he would conf- go to confession. And he would often go to confession multiple times a day. Now, so just imagine, he's a single guy living in a monastery, you know, studying and working, and he would go multiple times a day to confession. And his confessor, uh, the man who was, was, his, was basically his priest, but another person in the, a higher-ranking monk or whatever in the thing, was basically like, Martin, like, dude, you can't... Well, he probably didn't say dude. But he said, he said, he said, yeah, he said, you can't be sinning this much. Like, it's, it's like nearly impossible. But, but there are reports that he would, he would take like a cat of nine tails. Do you know what, do you, do you know what this, this thing is? And it has, it's, a, it's basically a leather whip. And, and he would beat himself with it as part of his, as, as part of uh, what to try to confess his sins and to, and to get right with God and this sort of thing. He would spend hours and hours and hours in prayer, face down in front of the altar, and so he, he, he just very much struggled with this thing because, because he, just, he never felt like he could do enough in order to gain God's favor. Because in a sense, that's, that's the way the Catholic theology was set up, was that you, you, you were supposed to do good works in order to earn God's favor and to earn your forgiveness. That seems like a very foreign idea to most of us. Well, it's because of the Reformation. And so... Through his study, um, he was a very, a very brilliant um, theologian and teacher and preacher. He became very well known. But this phrase, by grace through faith, that that's how you have been saved, that's how you've been set free from your sins, not by your works, as we heard there, that became very important to Martin Luther. And it really freed him because now all of a sudden, He's like, well, it's not these works that earn my salvation. It's by grace through faith. It's through Jesus. Jesus has already forgiven us. And so you've heard me preach this many times, right? We're already forgiven. God has already done it. We don't have to earn God's favor. But that was not what the Catholic Church, you know, thought. And basically, the Catholic Church was everything. I mean, they were a political power, the religious power, and at that time, the Catholic Church was incredibly corrupt. Most of the, most of the bishops, most of the cardinals, all of those were, were appointed um, by the Pope, but they were usually political appointments. These were not necessarily people of faith. These were sons of kings or, you know, uh, that sort of thing, or people the Pope was trying to curry favor with. Uh, later on, it would be the kings who would be appointing the bishops, especially in England. But that's another, that's another part of the Reformation we won't talk about today. So there was a lot of corruption going on, and then there was a lot of money in the church. The church owned a majority of the property in England, um, at least during that time. Now, in other countries, I'm not for sure how much it owned. But in England, the church owned like more than half of the property in the country. Just think about that. We think we got a lot of churches in Richmond. I mean, they might not have had a lot of churches, but the church owned the property. 
And so they were able then to get the proceeds off of that. And so, of course, the kings and the princes and whatever, they wanted that for themselves. So, that, so that's also going on in the midst of this, the political part of the, of the Reformation is, is that um, the kings and, 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 the, and the aristocracy, the landowners, they wanted more land. They wanted to be richer, and they couldn't do it because the, the church also had that, that kind of control and power. So anyway, that's a little bit of a, a, a sidetrack. But So Luther then at one point, uh, again, this is a little bit disputed, even though it's a fact that, that we talk about in church history all the time. One of the ways that you uh, then would create debate is uh, you, would, you would write up your thesis, and you would nail it on the church door. And in Wittenberg, where, where, where he was, that's where his school was. That's where, his, that's where he taught. Um, so he uh, wrote 95 of these and put them on a document and, and supposedly, anyway, nailed them on the church door, thus Noah's shirt. Nailed it. Right? With Martin Luther there. And so, and so then that... There wasn't a big kerfuffle at that point because most of these, he just wanted to reform the church. He wanted, he wanted, to, he wanted them to see the truth of the scripture and, to, and, to, and for the Pope to recognize where the church had gone astray. Well, that's not going to happen. So, also at this time, does anybody know what amazing contraption had been invented? Printing press. The printing press. What did you say, Mason? What did you say? Oh, you were shocked that he knew. There we go. All right. Look at that. Education. One of the reasons why you get an education is because of the reformers. Reformers believed that everybody should be able to read the scripture in their own language. So Martin Luther um, translated uh, the Bible into German. And actually, the way that he translated it ends up influencing how German is spoken still to this day and how it is written because of how, the, how he structured sentences and how, he, and how he did that very much influenced because that's what people were reading because then they started to print, they started to print Bibles. They started to, to read them. They started to, to do those things. And so Martin Luther was a pro- prolific writer and so his stuff starts to get published and produced. And so more and more people are beginning to, to read it. Those who could already read, were, those people were beginning to read it and hearing about the corruption of the Catholic Church and, and all these sorts of things. So, but that's a lot of history. So that's, that's in 1517. Oh, so here's an interesting fact that I didn't know. I think it's still true. There are more, there, there, there are more books written about Luther than about anyone in history except Jesus. There are more books about Martin Luther than there are about anybody else in history except Jesus. That's the influence that this, that this guy had, has to this day. Yeah, just, it's fat. I, I didn't, you know, I grew up as a Lutheran, so, you know, Luther was everything to us. Even though, even though later on in his life he was he was anti-Semitic, um, and he wrote about that, um, he 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 definitely wrote 
um, some really nasty things during the Peasants' Revolution in Germany. That's another story. But, but so, th- so he's a complicated, just like everybody else, you know. He's a complicated individual. He sort of reminds me of Peter in the Bible, you know, the, as a disciple. Like, he, he's this brilliant man and did, just d- did these amazing things. And, and, so, and so some things that, that come out of... Um, well, let me, let, me talk, let me talk about some of these other, some of these other reformers then. So then, um, one, of the, one of the other major uh, reformers is our theological forefather, John Calvin. And John Calvin is really, and if you look on your history, you'll see, you'll see the names of, of, of three people, one of them who I don't have a picture of up here. But John Calvin is, ends up being uh, based in Geneva, and really he runs Geneva. It, it, he has this huge influence on Geneva as a city-state, and the way that he organizes the church is the way that he organizes the government in, um, in Geneva. And, and then that Presbyterian form of government, which you're going to hear about next week, is then how um, the United States is structured. The revolution, the American Revolution, um, at one time was called a Presbyterian Revolution. Fourteen of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were Presbyterian. We had a huge influence, that way of thinking. And, and you'll understand what Presbyterian really means next week. So, because I don't think, I don't, I don't know that I completely understood it until I really dug into it uh, for this series. So, so John Calvin then becomes incredibly influential, and we sort of attribute what we call Reformed theology to him. That's the umbrella. Because there's Lutheran theology, right, which comes from Luther, which, is, which, which has some tweaks and a little, some differences. And then there's Reformed theology. But they all, they all hold some things in common. And then, so then uh, this guy here, John Knox, it was a student of John Calvin who goes back to Scotland. Who goes back to Scotland and he basically leads the Reformation in, in Scotland. And John Knox was an incredibly fiery preacher. And this guy could get people riled up. And, and so they did a lot of horrible things in the name of Reformation, uh, destroyed a lot of beautiful art and, and statuary and, and, and all those sorts of things because you know, I think they believed that, that for something new to come, they needed to destroy the old, and the old was so corrupt that anything that represented it needed to come down. And so we, we've lost a tremendous amount of, of art and beautiful things that because that, that's one of the things the church was doing, was supporting artists and doing all that. Just think about the Sistine Chapel and all those kinds of things. They were doing that, but a lot of that got destroyed in, in the Reformation. And so you, have, so you have John Knox in Scotland, you have, you, uh, you have John Calvin in, in um, Geneva, and then you have Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich. And he's, and he's sort of equivalent, equivalent to John Calvin. He sort of runs Zurich as a city-state, and then, and then has a tremendous influence, um, has a tremendous influence uh, on, on folks there and, and, and um, outside of that. Uh, interesting fact, uh, Zwingli ends up dying with a battle axe in his hand, fighting against the Catholics. It's, I mean, this, these stories are just, if they weren't true, you just wouldn't believe them. Uh, it's just it's just this kind of things that were going on uh, then are just are just fascinating. So I want to talk about I want to talk about um, some things that that are core core to 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 the Reformation. One is grace. 
and not works. That's, that's, the, that, that's the, the, a big hinge here is that, is that um, you know, it was that you were supposed to earn your way to forgiveness. But through the Reformation, then it said, no, that's, al- that's already been done. And then that's been the great debate ever since, right? Well, then what does that mean? How does it work? Do we not have to do anything? We're forgiven, now what? You know? And so, and so we often talk about we're saved, and we're not just saved from our sin, but we're saved for service to God and service to our fellow human beings. Because often, often people will say, well, I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved from my sin. I've got, I'm good with God, whatever. But we're saved for something. It's an active sort of, sort of thing, but through grace. The other thing that's really radical that, that, that one writer uh, writes about, that if Martin Luther would have worked this out to the end, and if, and if we would have followed it, um, uh, we would have no churches. And it's the priesthood of all believers. That every one of us, every one of us is called, in a sense, to be a priest, or as Luther would say, to be a little Christ to each other. The priesthood of all believers. And so that's something that, that we talk about, and of course Presbyterians, I'll talk about that next week, but, but uh, that we talk about that every one of us Every one of us is called to serve and to be in ministry. It's not just, it's not just the guys in the white or black robes with, you know, with, with things around their neck. It's not those who've been ordained you know, to the ministry, who have a ministry. It's the priesthood of all believers. And that was a radical, radical idea to think that, to think that you didn't need that mediator, that priest at the, at the altar mediating the sacrament for you so that it would become the, the body and blood of Christ, you know, sort of confecting it and giving it to you. Because without that priest, you couldn't do it. That's what, that's what they believed. Right? And so then this priesthood of all believers begins to, begins to change things. And of course then, we, we know that from the Reformation then, and you see on your history, things begin to splinter very quickly. Because if, because if all of us are priests, then I, if, I, if I believe this and you believe that, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Right? And so, so it begins to do that. So, but the priesthood of all believers is, is just, I mean, it is interesting to think that, that if you work it out to the end, you might not have churches. You might have gatherings of people who would worship together. You might, you might have that, but you might not have the structure that we have. Right? You might not have ministers of word and sacrament. Because all of us, all of us are priests. And then sacraments. So who, who knows how many, how many sacraments in the Catholic Church? Seven. Very good. Got some Catholic boys in the room. All right. Yeah, seven sacraments. Um, and, uh, and the Reformers, because they believe that everything, everything should be backed up by Scripture, said there's only two. And what are they? Right? Baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, whatever we, whatever we call it. Right? This in, in, um, in, in Reformed churches in, in, uh, becomes, this becomes, instead of an altar, it becomes a table because on it is a meal. And so, and so it moves away from the back wall and it comes out and then we, people start gathering around it. 
So that's, I mean, you begin to see the permutations of, of this. The sacrament isn't mediated by the priest. It is, it, it, it is in, in some sense, we, we start saying it's hosted by Christ, right? It's hosted by Christ, and it doesn't, um, Martin Luther went so far to say it doesn't, it doesn't really even, the, the effectiveness of the sacraments, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even matter how faithful the priest is, or the pastor is, because the sacraments have their own, are imbued with, with the Spirit of Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, it's, I mean, some really radical and, and different ideas that we, I think, we often um, take for granted. So grace and the priesthood of all believers and the sacraments are, are three, three big pieces of, of the Reformation. And then I want to talk about what we call the, the five solas, and then we're going to sort of wrap up. The five solas. Sola Scriptura. The word alone, or scripture alone. Remember that in, that, in that, that hymn, that Reformation hymn that we sang? The word alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory, or by giving glory to God alone. So you see all these alones are really, are really all, in, in some sense, if, if, you, if, you, if you want to understand that, they're all, they're all digs against the Catholic Church, in a sense, because they're, they're saying it, the, it is, the Pope is not the authority. Christ alone is the authority. The Word alone is the authority. Grace and faith alone are the things that we, that we live by. Um, and, and we do everything to give, to give God glory alone. So it's... So those those five solas are still part of still part of our thinking, and you see it in, just in the way that we do. It. It's just imbued into everything, into everything that we do. And so this, you know, this uh, this idea now that that some some of us get some of us get worked up about that people say, well, I can just you know I can just go walk in nature and have my own faith. I don't need to I don't need to go to church. In some ways, is the working out of the Reformation. Maybe not helpful, in my opinion, you know, um, because when we gather, when we gather, there's something powerful that happens. That's not all we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be the priesthood of all believers out in the world. But and so, so then in the in the in the Presbyterian Church, um, there there comes this phrase, and it's ecclesia reformata semper reformanda, and you'll hear it used. A lot, but what it means is the church reformed, always being reformed, or the church reformed, always reforming, depending on how how it gets how it gets used. Um, how we would say it in in our in our official language is we would say the church reformed, always being reformed, according to the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Because if you, if you just take the phrase in its sort of naked form, you go, oh, well, whatever's new is good. It's sort of, can, can, you can kind of go that way. Or you can go, you can go to the other side, which is that the church, is, the church has already been reformed. We don't need to mess with it. But it, but it really is that God is, is always at work. And that's going to be the last sermon of this series is going to be talking about always being reformed. What, is that, what does that mean for us today? And so... What I want to leave you with today 
is that we are always being reformed. That God is at work in our lives. That reformation, it happened and it happens, just like, just like stories in the scripture. And so your life is a story that's being told ongoing. And no matter what's happening within it, you do not have to earn God's favor. You may have to earn human favor somehow, but you do not have to earn God's favor. It is by grace through faith that you have been brought into this family, into this body of Christ. And so may you embrace the reformation that is happening in you. And may you, I hope today, know a little more about the reformation which brought us here 501 years later. Amen.